It's difficult with a heavy heart. Exodus 33 is what we're going to study tonight. We've made it this far in our trek through Exodus. I pray it's been a blessing to you to get a full understanding of Exodus chapter 33. I feel like you have to kind of know where we've been, chapter 32, and kind of know where we're going, chapter 34. Okay? <laughs> These chapters really work together. Where we've been last week, if you were here, was really a kind of a downer chapter, a very disappointing performance by the nation Israel. Amen? If you were here, you saw the debauchery of this golden calf episode. You all know the details, but it was quintessential Jewish rebellion, really. They did their own thing. Moses having a mountaintop moment comes down to these stiff-necked, willfully obstinate people making their own God. Could you imagine? That's where we were last week. And then next week, I won't give away all the secrets, but we'll see a restoration and a renewal of chapter 32. Right? You have the sin and the rebellion. In chapter 34, you have this restoration. It's like you'll see next week that God gives Israel a do-over. Evidently, in his economy, there is do-overs. He's going to renew their contract, their covenant. But today, we're smack down in the middle between sin, rebellion, and restoration. And the theme for tonight the message that we'll get to, especially in the final section of this chapter, is it's mediation. Someone has to mediate. Someone has to broker a deal to get to this restoration. God is offended. I don't know if you like the way God acted in chapter 32, but it, it's the way he acted. He was angry. Someone's got to bridge that gulf. And Moses here does a great job of mediating for his people to get back God's presence in the same way it was in chapter 31. <laughs> so that's where we're at today. Mediation. And isn't that a familiar flow in the life of not only the Jew, but the Christian? Sin, rebellion, stiff-necked people doing their own thing breaking fellowship with God, and then eventually we get to the point where someone, in the Christian case, the one, Jesus Christ, mediates on our behalf and makes things right again with God, right? That's the flow of our life for the most part, sin, mediation through Jesus Christ to being okay with God again. It's this flow of the, of the Jew and and the Christian, remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5? So there's one God, right? And one mediator between God and man, right? The man Jesus Christ, who gave a ransom for all, amen? That's our flow as Christians. So mediation is where we're at in chapter 33. Let's check it out. We're going to do it in three sections. We'll get done early today. You like that? The first six verses, I'll read them to you. It really has um, 
it finds us with Moses communicating with God and God with Moses. And we'll see it's a command to leave Sinai. Right after the golden calf incident, God's gonna tell Moses to get your people out of here, right? And if, if, if you really look at these first six verses, you'll see embedded in it a, a very humbling, harsh message to the nation Israel that signifies something. And as we'll see in these verses, it's gonna signify that he ain't over it yet. <laughs> He's still displeased with these people. We'll see that. We'll also see that it has a purpose. This humbling message, this harsh words he's gonna give them here as he tells them to leave this area has a purpose, and that is to get the people ready for his mercy and compassion. Get them ready for restoration, chapter 34. You see? Because we have to get ready to receive that, and they're not in the state for that right now. Let's check out the first six verses here. Chapter 33, verse 1. The command to leave Sinai. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to these people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. For a single moment, should I go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. For therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from the Mount of Horeb onward. Wow. It starts out pretty good, right? Hey, Moses, take these people and let's get them out of here. And he reminds them of his covenant, his promise to them that they would get their promised land. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. Even in this horrible state of sin that Israel's in right now, he says, let's get out of here. Moses, take them. Take them up to the land flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> but it takes an awful turn in verse 3. Did you guys catch it? Check it out. But I will not go up among you. That's signifying something. This should be a red flag beaconing to the Israelites, listen, I'm still displeased with you. I ain't over chapter 32 yet. I don't take idolatry lightly. I am the I am. And you guys can go, but you'll go without me. Those are strong words. This is signifying that it's a big deal. Think about this. What's the whole purpose of Exodus? The whole purpose was so that Moses could, right, Exodus God's chosen people so he could be with them and they could worship him, right? It's the whole purpose. And in one single obstinance act of idolatry, 
it seems like the first 31 chapters of Exodus is being unraveled. It's a big deal. He's going to remove his presence. He's not going to go with them in the same way he did before. It's a big deal. And in this, you see, in these words, I will not go with you. You will hear probably the biggest demotion or the biggest consequence that sin has on anybody in any time period. It's that God's fellowship gets broken. It gets broken. Oh, no, we, we know God will never leave us nor forsake us, right? We know that. We know that nothing can separate us from his love. We know that, right? He's not going anywhere in that sense. But your fellowship with him is definitely going somewhere. Because all you got to do is look in the mirror when you sin, and you know that your fellowship has been broken because of our stubborn obstinance or idolatry in a way. Amen? That's the biggest demotion or consequence of sin. And they knew this. And God's saying, listen, you can take your land of milk and honey that I promised you. I'm the promise keeper, but you're going to go on your own. That's how serious I am right now. That's how offended. That's how my righteous indignation is still in my mind towards you. It's a big deal. Is it not? You're going to go alone. It's signifying he ain't over it yet. Do you see why? I kind of like this part. Verse 3, continuing. Did you see why I won't go up to you? Lest I consume you because you're a stiff-necked people. Last week and this week, I, I, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't like looking at God certain ways sometimes. <laughs> He's saying this. You guys are so bad. You're so stubborn. You're idolaters. When you have the real deal right in front of you, you can see me in this pillar of cloud. You're so bad that if, if I was next to you, my righteous anger would burn you up. <laughs> it's a protective mechanism. God's saying, I don't want to go with you because I might hurt you. I love you that much. Don't take this the wrong way, okay? I want to preface this with a couple of things. A, I love my kids, and I would never do anything to hurt them, okay? <laughs> we all clear with that? <laughs> but I'm also a parent, and I've been a parent of teenage boys. And I got that phrase. Sometimes I just got to get away from these boys because I don't want to do something that I don't want to do. Are you feeling me? I'm trying to keep it real in here today. <laughs> okay? Parents, you hearing me? <laughs> it's like, I need to get out of here right now because things are flashing through my head that aren't legal and not right. <laughs> I would consume you if I don't get away from you, you see? That's what God's saying. So my righteous indignation would have to be satisfied if I hung out with you guys much longer. Because you're stiff-necked. Does anybody like that word? I love <laughs> that there's not a better word. And I don't know what they're getting at. I don't like we live in a different culture now, but here's what that word means to me. I'm not a Jew. You know, I, I don't saddle up oxen and move them and their necks are stiff and everything that all the commentators say this means. This is what it means to me. When I was a kid, when I, when I wouldn't listen to my dad, I had a good dad. 
He's still a good dad, but when I was young, he was a really good dad, but he had five kids to take care of. And he didn't have, always have time to, you're such a great guy. Sometimes he said, you need to do this right now. And when I didn't sometimes, when I was being, doing my own thing, not listening to Papa, you know what he'd do? He would just gently but firmly take those hands that only a brick and stonemason could earn, just scratchy fingerprints wore off, and he would just put them on the back of my neck. Just like, hey, you're coming with me. <laughs> you're going this way. And he would point me in the direction he was telling me to go. And what did I do? My neck would get stiff, and I wanted to go my way. And he just, just gently, just real easy, just was like the force, right? He just grabbed me. That, that's what I think of. These guys want to do their own thing. God's saying, hey, come here. Come this way. I know what's best for you. And they're just, even he's grabbing them. And just, it's that stiff neckness. It's really stubborn obstinance. It's just, I'm going to do it Frankie Sinatra style, baby. I'm going to do it my way. Right? Got some older people in here. You know who Frank Sinatra is. That's great. Lest I consume you, you stiff-necked people. God's saying, man, in my graciousness, I'm not going with you guys. That's how mad I am right now. And if you don't like looking at God that way, it's not his flow. It's not at the, the way he prioritizes his actions. But there is such thing as righteous anger. And we're seeing it in the last two chapters. I got to tell you, I don't like it. But it's in the Bible, and I think it's real, and I think we have something to learn from it. Amen? That's what it signified, but here's what its purpose was, this message, how harsh it was. It was to get their attention. It was, it's to drive them inward. Right? It's to shame them. It means literally to look inside yourself and be, man, I got to examine myself. I blew it. I am stiff-necked. I did have the king of the universe guiding our way, and I still made a, an idol? It's crazy. That's what it did. Check it out. You can see it in verse 4. These harsh words had a purpose, and it worked. Check it out, verse 4. When the people heard these disastrous words, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. This is what this means. Those harsh words grieved them in their heart, and it came out of their mouth. They were mourning, and they even had a physical posture of, of mourning by not putting their ornaments on. That's what they do when they would humble and mourn. So in this harsh word, in these harsh words, it did its job. God's getting them ready to accept what he really wants to give them, not his anger, his compassion, his mercy. He's going to relent. It's coming. It's coming. Right? His goodness. That's what he wants, his love. That's what he wants. But we aren't ready to receive that sometimes. And sometimes it takes a stiff word to get people to look inside. It reminds me of the way Paul treated his sinning Airing church in Corinth. That was a dirty church. You think, you think society now has gone crooked? Read about the, the church there. 
there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, about verses 8, 9, and 10 there, he, he said, I'm glad I grieved you guys. I wrote some hard words to you. I'm glad I made you guys grieve. Why? Because it turned into a godly grief that made you sorry, and it humbled you, and you repented. It led to repentance, and you did everything you could do, it says in that little passage, to clear yourself of your wrongdoing. Amen? So sometimes harsh words aren't bad. Now listen, I'll say this. I believe in validation. In picking the good things that people do, even out of bad situations, I think that should be our default. It should be the majority of the way we deal with situations. Let's validate what was good. Try to curb what was bad, right? Let's tell people how it can be, not how it is all the time, right? I believe in that, right? Not beating people down, but telling them how it can be. You don't have to act this way. You can act this way. I love that. But these verses tell me there is some benefit sometimes, and this is not in style right now in our culture, to tell people when they're wrong in a way that shames them. That ain't right. This will not fly in our household. There's nothing good about this. I'm not going to say anything good about you and your actions right now because there's nothing to say, but you need to change. Amen? It's lost in our society today. We've gone soft. And soft is good. Okay, don't get me wrong. But part of the problem, especially with young men right now, is no one's being hard on them. No one's being hard on them. Not all the time, not beating them down, don't get me wrong, not demeaning them. I'm saying telling them how it really is. You're not pulling the line. That's not how a godly man acts. You're wrong. Straighten up. God expects more from you. Amen? So there's a time for that. And I like this. That's what it taught me here. Now listen. At this point, what we know, God's still mad. Right? That's all we know right now. God's mad still. And the people are softening. And that's a good thing. Now we're getting somewhere, right? They're starting to soften. They're mourning and they're softening for one big reason. If you didn't catch it, it's that God's starting. He broke fellowship. He broke, they broke fellowship with God. And that's signified by him taking his presence, threatening to not go with them. And we'll see this manifest in the next section. It's called the tent of meetings. It's a few verses here that prove that God's presence is still with them. But he's creating a little distance. That's why they're mourning. Is that God's presence isn't in the middle of them anymore. Check it out. The tent of meetings is the next few verses. Starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp. Far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meetings. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meetings which was outside the camp. When Moses went out to the tent, 
all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at their own tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Listen, it's a great section. The evidence that God had removed his presence and diminished his presence among his people was that the tent was moved out. It, it, it wasn't to be in the center here anymore. He moved it out. It's an encouraging message though, okay? This tent would be a substitute for the tabernacle that would be built, right? It's a substitute, but it's a encouraging substitute. That's what I titled these few verses. An encouraging substitute, if you're making notes. Substitute, because listen, this ain't the tabernacle. If 32 didn't happen, guess what Moses was doing in chapter 31 and a bunch of chapters before that? What was he doing with God up there? He was learning about the tabernacle, the beauty of it, how it would be the centerpiece of a community, right? That he would be close to the people, that his presence would be in the center and people's lives would revolve around this, right? Socially and ceremonially. This is a cheap substitute. This is a tent, Moses' personal tent, way at the edge of town. Substitute, right? But <laughs> it was far off, it says. But listen, it's an encouraging substitute. If you look at verse uh, four, uh, I mean seven, it says, um, it says they're far off from the camp and they called it the tent of meetings and everyone who saw the Lord would or could go out to the tent meeting. So listen, he's creating distance. Yes, it's a cheap substitute of what coulda, shoulda, woulda been, but it's encouraging because God had not abandoned his people. They still, a little harder, a little more invested, but they could go out and be close to the presence of God. Amen? So although it was a substitute, it's encouraging. It's an encouraging substitute. They still had access. God has not abandoned them 100%, and that is, that is encouraging. I like verse 8 as well. Read with me. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up each at his own tent. Follow with me here. I call this verse, this Moses, that Moses. Now, all of a sudden, <laughs> Moses has favor in the sight of the people. He's respected now, right? They looked at him, his tent alone, way out at the edge of town. They saw the pillar come down and they saw Moses meeting with God. God's presence was not diminished to Moses. And they said, oh, Moses. We respect Moses. But does anybody remember chapter 32? In the first part of that verse, you remember what they said about him? This person, Moses, 
Who knows where he is? Such a derogatory statement nobody has ever said. They know who Moses was, <laughs> no doubt. This person, Moses, that's offending. They didn't respect Moses. That was that Moses. Now this is Moses. Now we respect. I guess what I'm getting at here is what a fickle people. What a fickle people. You got God's special representative to the people, Moses, in all that he's done up to this point. And you got the people hating and then loving, right? This Moses, that Moses. Respect. Who's this guy, Moses? He is here. Let's make a calf. Man, pretty convicting. Because we all have people who lead us. Amen? We all have people that we answer to. I don't care who you are. Do you treat them that way? This, this guy, this guy, this guy, that guy? Your boss? Is that how you look at him? You respect him when he gives your paycheck, but when he has to make the hard calls, this boss... But then he's that boss when he gives you your check, right? Did you do that to your pastors? This guy, when he says something I like, but that guy, when he says something that you may not agree with. I don't know. Fickle people. These Jews were fickle, but man, I see myself right there. And God help us all. For the people that God has put over you, and we all have them, that we may look at them the way God looks at them. For some reason, God has put them over you. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like when people treat me that way. Moses was doing nothing but trying to serve the Lord and help his people. This Moses, that Moses. Verse 8. Now that God's presence was at his door, he was something special. But yet in chapter 32, he was this Moses, someone who wasn't around and wasn't worthy. Something to think about. Check out verse 11. Moses was special. As we know, God's special representative says there in verse 11 that God spoke with Moses face to face. That's really special. God has spoken to people, I believe, since he made us, right? Sometimes in audible voices, sometimes in visions and dreams, sometimes in our subconsciousness. He talks to people, and it looks differently throughout the Bible if you look at it. But right here, he spoke with Moses like he talked to a friend, face to face, in the original language, literally means mouth to mouth. It means, uh, the way we would put this, this was a dialogue, not a monologue. Does that make sense? They were trading words back and forth. It's figuratively, it's not like they're looking each other face to face. It's that Moses said something, his mouth, his language, and then God would say something. And they would converse like friends. Come on, that's awesome. That's awesome to me. Moses was special. He spoke in a, a directly and precisely back and forth with God Almighty. 
See, this is what I like about Moses. And we're about to get ready to the mediation part, the best part, the heart of this. Moses, you can say whatever you want about Moses. Sometimes he's good and sometimes he's bad. I suppose he's like all leaders. But this next section, if he was my coach, I'd run through a wall for him. Wait till you see this. If he was my boss, I would work overtime for free. (laughs) Right? I'd say, yes, sir. Where do I go? Sign me up. Because, see, here's the thing you got to get up to this point. God's presence is being diminished with the people, but Moses, he had it all. He had God's presence. He didn't partake in any of this stuff. Him and Joshua were clear from it. God wasn't mad at him, right? It was just the people. He had good standing with God, and it's amazing what he does with that. He lever- This next section, he leverages it all. All the power, the privilege, the presence of God right in front of him. He leverages all of that that he had in himself so that the people could have that. That's a leader we're following. You show me that politician that will give up power and prestige and leverage all of that for the people, I'll vote for him. I don't see many of them hanging out. (laughs) Maybe I'm not reading the right people. He leverages it all. Check it out. He's in a position now where he can intercede and mediate now. He's going to take all the favor he has from God that never diminished. He's going to take it and he's going to leverage it so his people could get in right standing and get ready for chapter 34, a renewal, a new contract, a new covenant being re-signed. Check it out. Starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I have also found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found any favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. There's the first hint of a good leader, of a good mediator, someone wants to broker a deal between two sides. He says, listen, if I have found favor in your eyes, remember, these are your people. I'm gonna leverage that favor. Don't forget your people. Verse 14, and he said, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God hasn't, hasn't said anything about the people yet. He said, Moses, I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. And he said to him, Moses did, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct in I and your people from every other people on the face of of the earth. That's a great verse, that last one. Is it not your presence with me and these people that make us distinct from any other people on the face of the earth? So it makes them special was God's presence. So it makes us all special. 
It's a Jewish story, but this is a Christian story. We're nothing but a motley crew, all of us, the whole lot of us, Jew and Gentile, amen? And we're able to do extraordinary things, not because of our skill set, because we serve an extraordinary God. And when his presence is with us and we're using his power, we're extraordinary. And that's what Moses is saying. Hey, you're the moneymaker. You're what makes us special. When people see us, we're different because of you. Don't even send us away if you're not going with us. What a leader. I love this. I'm all fired up right now because he's saying, listen, you're what makes us special. If you don't go, we're not special. Don't send us away unless you come with us. And remember, this is a man who has God's favor. He's bringing in his people. Hey, these are your people. What makes these people special and me special is you. Without your presence in our midst, we are not, we're like everybody else. You know that? You know, one of my favorite Greek words is ekklesia. You know what it means? It's the church. You know what it means literally in Greek? It's the called out ones. That's the word that our Lord Jesus Christ picked through the Holy Spirit pinning that, that word. When, he, when it says church, it's you and me. And he used the word ecclesia. It means we've called you out of the peoples of the face of the earth to be part of a new people, the body of Christ, the called out ones. Amen? That's what he's talking about in a Jewish way. He's saying, God, you're, what's, you're, you're, you're the only one that makes us special. Everybody's special in a way, but make, what really makes us special is, 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 is our God. Verse 17, check this out. After that motivating speech, God relents. Check it out. And it shows his true heart, that he's slow to anger, that he hasn't chided for long, that he really wants to be the giver of grace and mercy and compassion. Check it out. In verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name, Moses. Then Moses said, show me your glory. <laughs> Moses got God to relent. He brokered a deal. Chapter 33 is about mediation. Someone who had favor leveraged it all so he could give favor to the people. What a great leader. And he got God to relent. But it wasn't really a hard task. Did he really get God to relent? I don't know. Maybe Moses knew well God's character. Because after all, they conversed face to face. Maybe, just maybe, he, he knew God's character enough that if he got it out verbally... God would say, okay, you got it. You got me. Yeah, you know who I am. Let me shower down what I really want to shower down. I was just making a point. Check it out. Maybe, I think the Psalms has put it perfect in Psalm 103, verse 7. God made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. And listen what follows. 
These are beautiful words. It fits right here. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger for long. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repays us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Amen? That's our God. That's our God. And Moses knew it. He just was appealing to that. Like, God, are you done making your point? They're humble. They're ready for it. They're ready for you. Moses didn't do much. This is what Moses did. Okay, so this was a big epiphany for me when I had kids. Okay, I had kids. They were young, and I would bring them to my parents' house, the grandparents. I was like, what happened to my parents? I would drop them off. I mean, and it was whatever they wanted. It didn't even matter. I mean, it was, I go over there in the morning, and they're like eating ice cream. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They come back with gifts, and what is going on here? What's happening? See, because I remember them parenting me, and it was nothing like that. I was raised in a household. I didn't even know what sugar cereal was. When I went to my grandparents' house, I'm like, what's this? My, it was out. My parents, we figured it out. There was actually sugar cereal. And my mom's like, oh, no. Hey, that's called birthday cereal. Sugar cereal to this day I call birthday cereal. Because you got one box on your birthday, and that was it. I go to my parents' house. They're eating sugar, and they're going, yeah, they're just throwing money around. It's like, what, Dad? I mean, when you brought them back from a visit from the grandparents, they have to be debriefed. I mean, okay, here's the deal. This is back to the rules. I mean, <laughs> because a grandparent's job, for the most part, I know there's exceptions, but in a healthy family unit, their job is to really just bless their grandkids. It's really, it's the best job in the world. I hear people, I can't wait to be a, a, a grandparent. I mean, I'd like my boys to meet a nice girl first, but. <laughs> but my point is, is I hear it's great because you just get the lavish. The, it's your opportunity just to be grandma and grandpa, papa and nani. It's special their heart of a nanny or a papa. That's all Moses did. It wasn't a hard thing to do. It's not like he twisted God's arm and made him relent. Nah, I don't think so. God is making a point. He made it. Okay. Yeah, I'll give him the goods because that's really who I am. That's my flow. I don't, remember in Psalm, I don't chide for long. I don't hold my anger. There's, as we've seen, righteous indignation and anger to make a point and to bring people so they can be ready. See, now the people, see, here's what God knew. These people were ready now. When you're brokering a deal, both sides got to be open. God's always open. The people weren't open. They were prideful. They were stiff-necked. They were idolaters. They were in their sin, and they were nowhere near being ready for restoration. So God brought them there. And now they're ready to accept the goods from our Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father, okay? Amen? Moses simply says this, 
show me your glory after that. And what he means by this is, hey, can you seal the deal? I want to see you. That's all he was asking for. Put it in writing. He just brokered a deal and he said, show me your glory. And instead of God revealing himself in fire or a cloud or any of that stuff, he simply just looked at him and said this, verse 20, but he's, uh, verse, sorry, 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious and I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. My goodness will pass before you and I will make you proclaim my name. Does that sound familiar to anybody? If, if you've been studying, this has covenant overtones. Listen, God's saying, I'm gonna show you glory here in one more verse. I'll, I'll show you a little peek of me. It'll be my back. It'll be enough to blow you away. You can't even see it. In fact, I'll put you in a crack. I'll just put my hand over you and you can just get a little glimpse. Okay, but right now you want, you want to seal the deal? That's what you're asking me for, right? You want to see my glory? To make sure what I'm saying is sealed? Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to pass glory in front of you and I'm going to make you proclaim the Lord. Literally, that, that I am that I am. That should echo chapter three. Remember when Moses got called? The burning bush? Who shall I tell him sent me? My name, I am. Tell him the I am sent you. You see, I think this is a play. I think God's saying, listen, I'm going to bring you all the way back and I'm going to give you a do-over. That's chapter 33, 34 is. It's a do-over. It's a renewal of the covenant. They're going to start over. They're going to say, God's going to say this. Hey, let's sign, a, let's sign this deal again and we need to renew your contract and then we're going to wipe chapter 32 off the books. That's what he means by that. Amen. He's not only a covenant maker, but he's, a, <laughs> he's able to start over with these people. That's what I think is going on here. So listen, chapter 32 is a disaster, disappointment. Chapter 34 is going to be the renewal. And in the middle here, I hope you saw that Moses mediated and got the people through God to be ready to broker this deal that you're going to see next week. And you're going to see a rewriting and, 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 a, and a renewal and restoration so I hope you saw that today. I hope it's a blessing for you today. And I pray that each one of us here today would remember the Ericsons. Keep them in your prayers. Pray. If you're not close to them, pray that God would bring up someone close to them. Do encourage them to fall back into our Lord. To let God's spirit truly be a comforter. That their scars and all their, their hurt would be filled for the salve of the Holy Spirit, amen? So Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your people. Would you give a special dose of comfort to the Ericsons this day, this moment? I pray this in your name, amen.